Thank you, Karen, for ministering in music. In light of the message of the song, Adoring Him, I'm going to interact with a portion of Scripture this morning, and then we'll sing and pray and give and so on in response to the portion of Scripture we will look at. For you men, husbands and sons, how would you respond if your wife or mother came home tomorrow night and shared this account. Today I withdrew $60,000 from our retirement account and purchased a ring with the money. Then I went to this home where they help men who struggle with drugs and alcohol. There There was a man teaching at this home about God to these alcohol and drug addicts. I heard him teach several other times. He's in Target. To honor the teacher, I gave him the $60,000 ring I purchased. Think about it. How would you respond? $60,000 down the tubes. Let's take our Bibles and turn to a similar account in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, in just a few moments we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 14. But keep in mind that in Mark, Jesus is being revealed as one who is unique. He's being revealed as the Son of God. He's the one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is sensitive to God's Spirit. He's the one who is able to resist Satan. Christ is being revealed in a number of ways. His character, his being. And his character, his being, his identity is expressed because he proclaimed the good news. He taught with authority. He quieted and cast out an evil spirit. He healed a man with leprosy. He called Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. He's Lord over nature. He could heal a demon-possessed man. No one could bind. He raised a girl from the dead and healed a sick woman. He fed 5,000. He laid down the requirements for discipleship. He was willing to suffer to obey his father. He taught that being a disciple of Christ means to become helplessly dependent. Jesus is worthy of worship and has authority over the temple. Those are some of the things that are being communicated to show that Jesus Christ is unique. He is the Son of God. Let's read together beginning with verse 1 of Mark 14. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany... Reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. 
Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them at any time. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume in my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. As we think about this passage, we need to understand that the entire chapter of Mark 14 deals with Jesus being abandoned. In verses 1 through 11, there's preparation for when Jesus will be abandoned. In verses 12 through 26, there's a prediction that he is going to be abandoned. He talks to the 12 and he says, you know, one of you will betray me. The rest of you will deny me. In verses 27 through 20 or 31, he talks about Peter and says explicitly, Peter, you know, you're going to deny me. You're going to abandon me. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane praying, he said to Peter, James, and John, now watch with me. And what did they do? They slept. They abandoned him. In verses 43 through 65, he was abandoned by the 11 when he was arrested. They fled. And then he was abandoned by Peter in verses 66 through 72. But in verses 1 through 11, we find Jesus is being anointed. In verses 1 and 2, there's some plans to arrest Jesus because they wanted to kill him. And then in verses 3, that should be 3 through 9, in the middle of plans to arrest Jesus and kill him, there's this account of, anointing Jesus with expensive perfume. And then you go back to the betrayal by Judas in verses 10 and 11. Kind of a sandwich deal. They want to kill Jesus. Jesus is anointed. And then plans are made to kill Jesus. Interesting how the passage is made. And it's interesting, too, that Jesus was abandoned by everyone. He died alone. The events in Mark chapter 14 are closely related to those in chapters 11 through 13. In chapter 11, we find the triumphal entry, which took place a week before the crucifixion. The events of teaching in chapter 11, 12 through the end of chapter 30 or 13 are within several days. All of the events in chapters 11 through 14, or I'm sorry, 16, would take place within 10 days. We find in verse 1, now the Passover, 
and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. So what happens? The chief priests and teachers of the law are looking for a sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said. Now, please understand that the Passover goes back to what happened in the Old Testament when Israel came out of Egypt, the Exodus. Lord willing, we'll talk about the Passover a little more next week. In in conjunction with the Passover, you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover commenced or began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Indicative of the quickness with which the children of Israel left Egypt. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread meant that there could be no leaven in the house. So it's at this point in time, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for a sly way to kill Jesus. We find that this is an official decision as opposed to a popular decision. And remember that the chief priest, the Pharisees, are out to get Jesus because Jesus spoke clearly against temple worship. And in verse 18 of chapter 11, it says, the chief priest and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They're planning to arrest him, planning to have him killed. It's interesting that the religious people are out to kill Jesus. And it seems religious people were the greatest enemies of Jesus. And down through the halls of time, you will find that some of the greatest enemies of Christianity, of Christ, are religious people. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Hinduism, along with many, many other religions and isms. Nothing new under the sun. They're out to get Jesus. Who's out to get him? The religious people. The word looking for, verse one there towards the end, carries with it the idea of trying to gain power over. The word for rest carries the idea of seizing. They wanted to seize Jesus. Sly carries the idea of they want to do this in a deceptive way with an intent to kill him. The redemption will be brought about at the cross no less than at the Red Sea. But the cross required the death of the firstborn, just as the exodus from Egypt required the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn of those in Egypt and the death of an animal for the Jewish people. Jerusalem was where the Passover would take place. The only place where the Passover could take place, where the lamb had to be sacrificed. And we need to understand that it's during the Passover that the religious leaders are talking about. And people would have come to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was being overflown with all kinds of people. 
So they say in verse 2, but not during the feast, or the people may riot. So there's this plan to have Jesus killed, and in the midst of this plan to have Jesus killed, what is happening? We find the account of Jesus in Bethany reclining at a table being inserted. Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. It's kind of a base camp for Jesus since he came towards Jerusalem, according to Mark 1. 1, or 11, 1, and 11, 11, and 11, 12. Simon the leper was apparently not known by the Roman readers. But he's hosting a gathering Apparently a former leper, because if he was a leper at this time, no, he would not be able to have people into his home. Who the woman is, the text does not say. But according to John's account, it may have been Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But in Mark, it's not mentioned. And it's interesting that one of the marks of Jesus says, while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, One of the marks of Jesus was to be in homes. Mark 1, Mark 2, several times in Mark 2, Mark 3, Mark 5, Mark 7, several times there, Mark 9, Mark 10. Jesus was in homes. Apparently some ministry takes place in homes. But he's in this home, the home of Simon the leper, And remember the character, the identity, the being of Jesus. He is the son of God. And what does this unnamed woman do? She came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume. Made of pure nard, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now it says very clearly in the text, very expensive perfume. And when people responded, they said, this is a year's wages or more. And the reason I used a forty to 60,000 earlier was, let's just say that someone earns forty to 60,000 nowadays. A year's wages being poured out on Jesus. Done by a woman. Women did not have a high standing. And as a rule, it was a breach of etiquette for a, or a, during a Jewish male fellowship to be interrupted by a woman unless she was bringing in food. But Mark reminds us that the societal and even the Jewish values were not the values of Jesus. In this case, the woman is commended for her faith. And Mark seems to want to emphasize the value of what was done. A jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. In verse 5, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. So what would you guys do? Your wife, your mother comes home tomorrow night and says, I just 
took $60,000, bought a ring, and gave it to some teacher downtown. But who was it? He's a teacher. He's teaching the truth. The text does not tell us, you know, where it came from, but it was apparently in the family. And she anoints him. Not only does she anoint him, in the process she broke the jar. So the perfume is being spilled out. The vessel can no longer be used in the future. And some present were saying indignantly to one another, can you hear them? Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. Question, was it wasteful? And I'm using today's monetary figures to devote 40 to $60,000 to Jesus in an act of worship. Why this waste of perfume? Is it wasteful to use perfume on Jesus in preparation for his death? See, it could have been sold, they said, for more than a year's wages. That's human opinion. Even the religious community struggles with costly sacrifice for Christ. Don't make Christianity too costly. Christ gave his all. If God gave his only begotten son... Why should this lady hold back? Why should the 12 hold back? Why should we hold back? Remember what Jesus said about the widow's offering in Mark 12, 41 through 44, who gave the two small coins that she gave from what she had. God demanded costly items in the Old Testament. First fruits, a perfect lamb, perfect livestock, year old, prime. God and Jesus are worth costly worship. Remember that Mark's point presented in the gospel of Mark is the identity, the character, the being of Jesus. The one who poured the perfume out in the context of Mark 14 seems to have grasped the identity, the being, the character of Jesus. He is worth a costly Perfume in preparation for his death. The rest didn't grasp that. And apparently the 12 are involved in rebuking Jesus or rebuking the lady. They didn't grasp his identity, his character, his being. It seems one's willingness to give to Christ in costly ways is directly related to one's understanding of his character, his identity, his being. 
we today emphasize young people know what they believe or should know why they believe. I don't doubt that one minute. But I think even deeper in that is not why they believe, but who they believe. Are they convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, and so on? Consider the impact of this on the Roman churches they read or they hear. Mark 11, ah, this lady poured out expensive perfume on Jesus. He must be who he claimed to be. John died last night. Lorraine slated for tonight to die at the hands of Nero. It's worth it. Because this lady poured expensive perfume on Jesus. She knew who he was. We know who he was. It's okay. We're willing to die for him. But they rebuked the woman harshly. The idea of rebuking harshly is to be agitated. This indignation. You know, you, they really are getting on this woman's case. They're agitated. They're frustrated. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages. And the money given to the poor. They scandalized her. Stop and think about it. Someone gets an education. They spend four years in college. They go to medical school and they spend how many years in medical school? And someone comes up and says, what are you going to do with your life? I'm going to a remote village in Papua New Guinea and I'm going to devote my life to that village to share Jesus through the medical realm. My, what a waste of such talent. There were five men who went to Ecuador, who went to the Indians, who had not heard the gospel of Christ. Smart men, educated men. My, what a waste to invest their life in a bunch of people that will kill. My, what a waste of this perfume. The response was not only demeaning to the woman, but also demeaning to Jesus, whom they regarded as unworthy of such extravagance. Stop and think about it. Jesus is not worth such extravagance. But the woman recognized who he was. What is Jesus' response? What's the divine perspective? Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume in my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. 
wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus doesn't enter into debate with the disciples about the virtues of charitable giving. Rather, he defends the person. who made such a sacrifice, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. Faith and discipleship are not ideal realms. What we might like to be or do, they're absolute realities. Giving what we have. Well, if I had a million dollars... I would give half of it to God. No. What I have now is how I'm to use, or what I'm to use in worship. She used what she had, as did the woman who had the two mites, in worship of God. Jesus' statement in verse 7, the poor you will always have with you but you will not always have me, shouldn't be taken as indifference to the poor. The Old Testament is full of admonitions to show mercy to the poor, for Israel itself had been poor in Egypt. That Jesus taught and practiced mercy to the poor is attested by his life. The essential issue in verse 7 is not the poor, but the woman in their midst. And not even the highest social good can be used to justify the injury done to her. Once Jesus puts forth his own person in scandalous prominence, you can have the poor anytime you want, but you do not always have me. We can perhaps justify such a statement from the mouth of God, but imagine a justification for such a statement from a mere mortal. And Jesus is seen as a mere mortal at this point in time. In placing himself above the poor, Jesus places himself above the commandment to love your neighbors yourself. But with the unassuming, assuming pretentiousness, Jesus asserts his priority to all other goods. The value of a gift I'm sorry, the value of a gift signals the value of the person to whom it is given. The extravagance of the woman shows that she alone understands Jesus' immeasurable worth. Probably some of the twelve are rebuking her harshly. Jesus said, don't knock her. You'll have the poor among you all the time, but you won't always have me. They didn't get it. Jesus does. And he says, you know, that what she has done will be spoken of throughout the world. Then we go to verses 10 and 11. And we go back to Judas Iscariot. Now, one of the 12, he goes to the chief priest and they come to an agreement as far as betraying Jesus. 
Please get the picture. They're trying to find a way to kill Jesus. Then we have this expensive gift of perfume, and then we go back to trying to kill Jesus. Money, money, money. And in the center, we have tons of money over a year's worth of wages. What's the point of the passage? In my humble opinion, the one who is worthy of anointing with expensive perfume is hated by religious people. Even one of the twelve. Thus the Roman believers should not be surprised at the persecution they face. The sacrifice of their lives is a wonderful perfume to the Son of God. Couple applications. Religious people will be some of the greatest enemies of those who follow Christ. Christ suffered. The twelve suffered. The Roman believers suffered. Why should we be surprised if we suffer? Expect it. Jesus ministered frequently in homes. Should we seek to be in the homes of unbelievers in our community and invite them into our homes? Jesus is in the homes of people over and over again. Maybe we ought to do the same. Jesus delights in expensive total giving to him. But the world at large and the religious community has problems with total, complete, costly giving to Christ, whether money or one's possessions or oneself. Let's not focus on what we might desire to give, but what we presently have. Most people will not understand those who give in a costly manner. If I were to get up next Sunday morning, and I said, you know, the Lord really spoke to me this week. And Ruth Ann and I agreed, and we prayed about it. We took all our money out of our retirement to give to this cause for the furtherance of the gospel. How many here would say, as he gone wacko, And that's what the religious people are saying about this woman. She's going wacko because she gave in a costly way. Jesus does not condemn her. He compliments her for recognizing what she recognized about him. Christ. And obeying him can be costly. Since 2010, an estimated 11,500 Christians have been killed in Nigeria for their faith. We 
One Nigerian Christian who was helped by the name of John escaped as the people came to destroy his village. They fled, he fled to Cameroon with his family. And due to needing some help with his family, he went back home to get some of the cattle that were left. And while there, the enemy saw him, took him, cut his head, his back, his legs with knives, and tied him to a tree left to die. He understood. Costly for Jesus. The woman understood Jesus' identity and responded accordingly. D.A. Carson says in his book, in the book of Philippians, and I quote, I would like to buy about three dollars worth of the gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I want to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I might find my ambitions redirected or my giving greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. End of quote. Costly giving by a woman. She did a beautiful thing. Scott?